Okay, uh, well, we're going we're gonna to go to Psalm 133. Psalm 133 is a psalm of ascent. This is as, uh, as pilgrims would be traveling from all over Israel to go up to Jerusalem to the temple. The temple was a central theme in all of Israel, and these are called songs of ascent. Um, and let's pray, and then we'll look at the study together. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you, God, for the blessing that is ours to behold in these psalms, these, these musical blessings that just come from the heart of a psalmist, David. And Lord, just to see as, as your children would, would go up to the temple to worship, God, what that does to your people as our hearts are knitted not only with you, as we see the two stations of the cross, the, the vertical and the horizontal, that when we're right with you, we're right with one another. And we can't be right with you unless we're right with one another. And then to see as, as we're entering into the church that we're not allowed to bring in to our time of worship, uh, uh, harboring a, a hatred, because Lord, you even say in your word, if you bring an offering to the Lord and there, remember you have an issue with your brother, leave the offering and go and be reconciled to your brother. And Lord, a church is a place for unity. It's a place where we're supposed to dwell together in unity. As it says in Ephesians 4, that we endeavor to keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. And so Lord, as we take a look at Psalm 133 and other Psalms and, and other verses, Lord, I pray that you would fill us and bless us and strengthen us in the riches of your word, for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, Psalm 131, 132, 133 are all songs of ascent, meaning as they're traveling up to Israel. And everywhere in Israel you travel, uh, everywhere in Israel you travel up to Jerusalem, excuse me. So it's a song of ascent as you're traveling up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is where the temple resided, where the Ark of the Covenant was in between the cherubim on the mercy seat, the, the glory of God resided as a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day. And, and the God of mercy, the God of all creation resided there. It was a monotheistic religion. It, the, the truth resided there. This was a God of mercy, a God of justice, a God of grace. And, uh, and David understood this. He, he, he desired that his son would build this elaborate temple um, and, and there in Jerusalem. And so as they're ascending up to Jerusalem for this time of worship during festivals, feast days, which I think there were six in the Jewish calendar, uh, they would sing these songs as they would travel up. And it begins with, with uh, uh, Psalm 131. Uh, Lord, my heart is not haughty, nor my eyes lofty. Neither, neither do I concern myself with great matters, nor with things too profound for me. Surely I've calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with his mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever. And I've covered this psalm, and for David it was written after he had been denied the opportunity to build the temple, and Solomon was going to build it, and he wrote this. But for the pilgrim traveling up to Jerusalem, their idea is, God, I'm going to come into the temple, and I'm not going to know everything about you. I'm not going to get you or understand you completely, but I'm coming to worship you and put my hope in you from this time forth and forever. There are some things that are going to be too lofty for me. There are going to be some things that are too profound for me, but I've got to tell you, my heart's not haughty, nor my eyes too lofty, neither do I concern myself with matters too profound for me, but I've calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child within me. Uh, I, I'm, I'm not, you know, like a, a child that's wanting milk roots, you know, and, and screams, and I've shared with you the story about Michael, how he did that with Michelle, and he was irritating, and, and now as a, as a weaned child, he just sits in my lap and calms down. He has no agenda, he just wants to be with the Father. 
And that's a pilgrim who comes into a church. They just want to settle down. Lord, I'm coming to meet with you. I've got no agenda. We come in here sometimes and, and, and we're just critiquing everybody and we're scanning and looking if the worship's any good and we're seeing what people are wearing and how people are praying and if they're raising their hands and if their hand moves and we're judging them and we're just going to town on people. And we're irritated and we've got issues with God. We've got issues with people and, and just stop. Don't just go back down to where you were and start singing the song before you get to the temple. You need to prepare your heart before you come in here because when you walk in with that attitude, you're crushing it for everybody else. You, you are, you're just a poison in that sense. Now still come because we'll, we'll be the antidote to your poison. We'll just love you to death. But the idea is in Psalm 131, just calm down. Calm and quiet your soul like a weaned child. Just, just quit putting agendas down before the Lord and walk into his presence. So that's ascending up to Jerusalem, preparing to enter into the temple. Psalm 132, interesting because it feeds into Psalm 133. It's a little longer. It says, Lord, remember David and all his afflictions, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob. Surely I will not go into the chamber of my house or go up to the comfort of my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes nor slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Behold, we heard it in uh, Ephrathah. Uh, we found it in the fields of the woods. Let us go into his tabernacle. Let us worship his footstool. Arise, O Lord, to your resting place, you in the ark of your strength. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness, and let your saints shout for joy. For your servant David's sake, do not turn away the face of your anointed. The Lord has sworn in truth to David. He will not turn from it, and I will set upon your throne the fruit of your body. If your sons will keep my covenant and my testimony, which I shall teach them, your sons also shall sit upon your throne forevermore. And the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. And this is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. And I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. I'll also clothe her her priests with salvation, and her saints shall shout aloud for joy. And there I will make the horn of David grow, and I will prepare a lamp for my anointed. And this is a messianic psalm. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but upon himself his crown shall flourish. And the idea is God is establishing this area of the world, this temple, to be a location where God would be glorified, his people would be blessed. And this is because David desired to build a house for the Lord. David wanted his anointed, uh, his generations to sit upon that throne as God had covenanted and promised. And so uh, this is the joy of David's heart. This is the joy of any pilgrim coming into Jerusalem. This, God has chosen us. God has chosen us. And I would look around the room and I'd say, well, maybe you're not Jewish. Maybe you are, but maybe you're not Jewish. I would just simply say, you and I were purchased with the holy blood of God and, and we were ransomed. He no longer calls us servants. He calls us friends and not just friends. He calls us sons adopted into his kingdom. And, and we have, we're, we're heirs and joint heirs of all the riches of heaven. And, and that is ours. And no longer do, do, does God dwell in temples made by human hands. He dwells in the hearts of men. So you don't have to go over to Jerusalem in a song of ascent to sense the presence of the Lord. He dwells in your heart. The Shekinah glory of God resides in you. He gives, he's given you his Holy Spirit as a deposit, as a seal of his righteousness. His righteousness imputed on your account. And this is the joy that is ours to behold. And it's the same for a pilgrim back before Christ was crucified that they'd be entering in saying, this is ours. This is ours. God established it. In all the world, he dwells right here for us. You can make that even more personal. In all the world, he dwells right here for me. That's pretty cool. And that takes you into Psalm 133. 
And it's one that's of great importance and one we're going to dwell on tonight in, in depth. It's one that, that we should all be mindful of. It's three verses, but it's so profound. It begins with the word behold, which uh, that's a word that's seldom seen in the scriptures. Behold. It's, it's this idea that, that this is a characteristic of a real saint, and you can't fail to inspect this. It's worthy of admiration. You need to, in a sense, pause and gaze upon it. You've got to take it all in. And it's going to charm you into this idea of imitating the Lord. He wants you to behold this. He wants you to dwell on it. He wants you to ruminate on it. Note it well. Grasp this. Because we're not going any further till you get the fact that the next thing he's going to say is of absolute importance. Behold. Don't even go any further until you understand what God is trying to get your attention for. He doesn't use that word cheaply. He doesn't use it abundantly. He uses it for very distinct purposes. And right now, he's saying to all of us, behold. What are we to behold? Well, that's real simple. How good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. He doesn't just say how good it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. He says, he doesn't just say how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. He says how good and pleasant. I mean... I had worldly friends, and it was pleasurable to hang around with them. We used to play poker a lot, drink together, smoke cigars. We used to party all the time. It was pleasurable. Sin is pleasurable for a season. How pleasurable it is. And we used to have fun. But the minute a trial would occur, something would happen, one guy would steal the other guy's girlfriend, and just all hell would break loose. And all of a sudden, that unity was shot. And, and the pleasure was accomplished in evil. We had pleasure in evil things. But the Lord says, time out. Let me show you how you can combine good and pleasure. How you can have great pleasure in doing something good, something righteous, something right. Good means blessed of God. And and, and there's things that we can do that are good, and they're not very pleasurable. Right? Hello? Sometimes it's just, it's, it's really, it's not pleasurable to face your sin when someone's calling you out on it. Anyone? Yeah, or admit to it. I, I, yeah? It's not good. It's difficult. I should say it's good. It's not pleasurable. Right? It's not pleasurable to confront sin in somebody else's life. I hate that. I just wish you'd clean up your side of the street so I don't have to deal with you. And you're going, well, I wish you'd clean up your side. Okay, shut up. But we, we go through these things where it's, it's, it's not pleasurable to have to, 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 to deal with church discipline. It isn't pleasurable. Matthew 18 is awful. Read it. It's awful. I hate it. I hate it when a, a man is leaving his wife or his wife is leaving her husband. And I have to address that. It is not pleasurable. I hate to address lying and, and, and trying to come to the truth. It's not pleasurable. It's good. It's good, but it's not pleasurable. The Lord is saying, let me show you something that's good and pleasurable. How good and pleasant it is for what? Well, behold this. We're putting these two together, good and pleasurable. Behold this. Here's what it is. Are you ready? It's really exciting. It's probably the most incredible thing that you and I can enjoy. And here's what it is. For brethren to dwell together in unity. 
We went with 50 people to Israel. It was an eclectic group. It was one of the weirdest experiences of my life. First day we get there, and I'm trying to figure out who these people are. A lot of them I never met before. Socioeconomic classes up here, down here, in between. Ethnicity here. Uh, religion. I mean, it was funky. We had some atheists. We had some alcoholics. We had some, we had some uh, oneness Pentecostal. We had some assemblies of Yahweh, which are non-Trinitarian. We had some st- strong evangelical believers. We, we had marriages that were struggling. It was er- everything. People who, had, who were trying to fight drug addiction that were clean for a year, they were all together in a bus. First day, it was like, nobody's talking. You're wondering if anybody's even listening. You're on the Mount of Beatitudes, talking about the Sermon on the Mount, how liberty had affected the nations and moved through the Western world, and how Christ came to set the captives free, and talking about freedom and liberty and sharing that, and you're just wondering if anybody's sinking in. Second or third day, we're at, at Jordan, and people want to get baptized. I don't know these people, but I'm going to do the baptizing. And some of them are lining up to be baptized, and they're coming, they're weeping. I have no idea what's going on in their life. I'm just, I mean, I'm here to dunk you. I, your, your lips quivering, your eyes are watering. It is, a, it is a profound experience for you. I get it, but I don't know what's going on. I told him, I said, you're, you're going down and you're associating yourself with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. You're coming up as a disciple. And the minute Jesus was baptized, the Spirit drove him into the wilderness for 40 days without food. Are you ready to be driven into the wilderness? You're going to get your spiritual butt kicked with this. Are you ready? <laughs> Every one of them, yeah. I'm like, I don't know what's going on here. These funky people, but let's do this. And a couple of the folks were kind of wandering around going, well, we don't really agree with this. This is, but it's very special. You know, and it's all the different stuff going on. And there wasn't quite unity, but people were excited about other people experiencing some things. And, and, uh, and it, was, it was weird. But it all kind of culminated in, in the Garden of Gethsemane. And, and uh, Ken Graves comes out. And this guy, it's like, it's like Shakespeare, MMA. You know, he's like, he's a fighter. Mal, mal, martial mal, art, fighting, kill people, but with a Shakespearean voice. He's eloquent in tearing you apart. Ken Graves is a pastor in Maine, Bangor, Maine. His voice is deep, and he memorizes poems that are 7,000 words long that are captivating, and he, he accentuates the parts that just, just blow you away, and everybody's in tears, and, and they're sensing the presence of the Lord as he three times asks for this cup to be taken from him, but not my, my, my will, but thy will be done. And, and everybody just, everybody just like Psalm 131, they just calmed down. They just gave up their agendas. They just gave up their agendas, and they realized God, you're here, and you're mine. And all of a sudden, the group started to come together. They started coming together, and it was really precious. And then towards the end, they're coming up and giving you hugs, and they're, come visit us, and we want you to, and get, can I get your number? And everybody's just so thrilled. And Yeah, I don't know. I thought maybe you guys, do you remember that part? I did. And, I, and then you got on the plane for 15 hours, and then you wanted to kill everybody. It was awesome. But this idea of dwelling together in unity, <clears throat> you know, I, I've oft, often thought, especially with Calvary chapels, uh, I think one of their weaknesses, and I'm sure there's a lot of folks who would disagree with me, I, I do think one of their weaknesses, especially after witnessing the Scottish Covenanters, 
when we were over at the Greyfriars Church and we were in the grass market in Scotland and we realized how significant that movement was in defying England and establishing the principles for, for the two forms of government in the United States with ecclesiastical and civil and seeing how this nation has flourished with religious liberty. This covenant that they did was based on, on all kinds of portions of Scripture from the Old Testament, but also a number of verses from the New Testament. For example, 1 Corinthians twelve twelve, the covenanters focused on, for as the body is one and it has many members, but all are members of that one body, being many are one body, so also is Christ, Colossians 1.18. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have preeminence. Ephesians 2.19-22. Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Talking about church membership. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows in a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together... For a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Matthew 28, Jesus came and spoke to them, verses 18 through 20, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go there, therefore, make disciples of all men and of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. And lo, I'm always with you, even to the ends of the age. Uh, Covenanters used Ephesians 2.19. Now, therefore, you're no longer strangers and foreigners, which I read earlier. Galatians 6.10, therefore we, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. 1 Corinthians 12.27, now you are the body of Christ and members individually. It speaks of membership in the body of Christ. And John 15.5, I am the vine, you are the branches, he who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. My point is this, uh, the covenanters really sought after church membership. Calvary chapels don't. We always say, you vote with your feet. You're a member if you're sitting in the chair. And that's kind of cool. You know, hey, man, I like it. But the idea to covenant together is going to be something of great importance when the church comes under persecution. You'll understand the value of membership. And when I say membership, I'm not talking a club. I'm talking where, as, as the founding fathers, and they were motivated by the Scottish covenanters in the Declaration of Independence saying that we pledge our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. They, were, they had it all on the line. See, the church today is, you come into the church and you're like, hey, man, this is hip, I dig it. Oh, you've offended me, I'm leaving. And, and my feeling is, you come in, you covenant to stay here. This is either your family or it isn't. You're either a member or you aren't. Either you're, you know, if, if, if we treated our family the way we treat a church, we would all be in disarray. I mean, the littlest thing set us off and irritate us and that's it, I'm out of here. Could you imagine doing that in your family? This is, we're a family of Christ. There should be a covenant in that regard. I, I think it's a weakness of the Calvary chapels. I'm investigating. Maybe we're going to do church membership. Then some of you can leave because you're irritated, but that's all right. <laughs> you just decided not to covenant with us. That's all right. But the idea is, as, as the persecution comes down and the heaviness hits, we're, we're not going to quit on each other. We're not going to quit. We're going to stick it out. I see this because when he says how good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity, when you covenant together and you pledge that you're going to stay and remain together, it's challenges that come. You're forced to work it out. You're forced to work it out. You can't, you can't be a divider. Proverbs 6 says, uh, verses 6 through 19 says, uh, These six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. 
A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans. None of these would work in the body of Christ if you want to call yourself a member, right? They'd be awful, wouldn't they? I mean, you'd stick out like a sore thumb if, and everyone goes, that's the person that's doing it. He's shedding innocent blood. He's lying. And look at that proud look. A heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift in running to evil, a false witness who speaks lies, and listen to this, pay attention to this, and one who sows discord among brethren. God hates it. He hates it. He hates it. You know what else he hates? What else does he hate? Divorce. That's division, isn't it? You take a board and you glue it together, and then you break it. It doesn't break where you glued it, does it? Everybody gets hurt. Kids are devastated. Lives are crushed. People are destroyed. It's one of the most awful things that we can endure as, as human beings. Listen to this. Department of Health and Human Services studied 30,000 American households. 30,000 American households. You ready? Nobody reports this. Department of Health and Human Services studied 30,000 American households. It found that for whites, blacks, Hispanics, and for every income level, children... uh, So it found that for whites, blacks, Hispanics, and for every income level, so rich and poor, got it? Whites, blacks, Hispanics, rich and poor. For every income level, children raised in single-parent homes were more likely to be suspended from school, to have emotional problems, and to behave badly. Private schools and all the other benefits that come with money apparently cannot equalize the effects of a broken home. We think the dividing line in society is between rich and poor, but the real dividing line is family structure, not income. Nobody reports that. Children from unified homes are statistical winners every time. Children do best when they grow up with married biological parents, period. But now the church doesn't focus on that. We're as divisive in our home as we are in the church. And we don't care about the fallout and everybody that's hurt and the testimony to the world around us. We'll yell and we'll scream and we'll fight and we'll kick and we want what we want and we want it now. And God hates that. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers. We fight because we're so selfish. We receive forgiveness in every area of our life, yet extend it not to one another. And we fight. We draw battle lines. We want our way. And children are ripped this side and ripped that side. We fight. And the church does the same thing. God says, I hate division. I hate divorce. I hate division. I hate those who sow division. I want you to endeavor. I want you to work. I want you to strive until you sweat drops of blood. I want you to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. You die to yourself. That that home would stay together. God wants us to dwell together in unity in the church, 
and in our homes. I'm reading this book. I brought a couple things out about it, but I'm reading this book. It's one of the most amazing books. It's a story about um, the Gilman football program in Maryland. A guy named Joe Ehrman, who was um, the coach. He was an assistant coach, defensive coach. The head coach was a, a young man, 10 years younger than him, that he took under his wing like a brother, and the two of them worked together in the lives of these young kids. The book's written by a guy named Jeff Marks. Jeff Marks, the author, knew... Joe Ehrman, when he was a all defensive pro uh, all defensive pro lineman for the Baltimore Colts, he was a ball boy. Joe Ehrman called him Brillo, the the author of the book. Jeff Marks called him Brillo. And uh, and and when they were tearing down the old Baltimore Colts stadium, Jeff Marks was a, a journalist, uh, and he wanted to do a story on where the old Colts were that he worked with as a ball boy, where they all were now. And he got in contact with Joe Ehrman who happened to be a minister, assistant pastor, a teaching pastor at a church, and a coach at Gilman School. And he was so intrigued by it. He went to go to a coach's meeting with Joe Ehrman. He sat in there, and he heard Joe share. And he, and, and he only knew him as a young boy, and he always looked up to him. But Joe started to share, and Jeff was sitting in the audience, and he said, you know, my dad used to come home, and he was a traveling salesman. I wouldn't see much of him. But when he would come home, he'd make me put on the boxing gloves. And we'd go down in the basement, and I was a young boy, seven or eight years of age, and I'd put on the boxing gloves, and my dad would begin to spar with me. And then he'd take the gloves off, and I'd have mine on, and my dad would be slapping me in the face. And I'd cry, and he'd say, Don't cry. Hold back your emotions. Be a man. And he said, My dad used to beat me until it was awful. And then he'd go on sales trips. He said, I, I, I had this empty wound of a dad in my life that just never filled. And I didn't know what it meant to be a man. The mystery of manhood was lost to me. When I got into the NFL and I excelled in football, I thought that being a man was the, the, the picture of masculinity in the world, which is this idea of physical abilities, uh, athletic ability. You're a man if you can excel at sports. And that's why football coaches push you and you're a man. But the, but the next conquest to be a man in the world's eyes is sexual prowess. And I'm watching it as, as, as I'm seeing coaches in our own high schools promote this. And then when you're finished with the athletic ability and the sexual prowess, then it's your financial gain is how you mark being a man. And, and Joe was always scarred by this and, and, and committed his life to teaching young men what it means to be a man. He said... Uh, as, as Jeff showed up on the football field the first day, it says, it started with the signature exchange of the Gilman football program, this time between uh, Biff, Coach Biff, the senior coach, and the gathered throng of 80 boys, freshmen through seniors, who would spend the next week practicing together before being split into varsity and junior varsity teams. And this is what, this is what Coach Ehrman would always say to the boys. He'd say, and he never carried a clipboard or a whistle. He had such respect to the boys, he'd just say, gather around. And they gather. And he'd look at the boys and he'd say, boys, what is the job of the coaching staff? And all the boys in unison would say, coach, to love us. He'd say, boys, what is your job? And they'd say, to love one another, to love each other. He'd say, that's right, boys. And then he gave him this, t- this talk. He says, I don't care if you're big or small, huge muscles or no muscles, never even played football or star of the team. I don't care about any of that stuff. 
Biff went on to tell the boys who sat in the grass while he spoke, if you're here, then you're one of us and we love you. Simple as that. He says, I don't want to see a kid sitting in a, in a lunch counter by himself in this school. You go and you sit with him. That goes for the whole school and you're going to set the example on loving one another. He says, look at me, boys. We're going to go through this whole thing as a team. We are the Gilman community, a community that is the only place probably in your whole life where you're going to be together and work together with a group as diverse as this, racially, socially, economically, you name it. It's a beautiful thing to be together like this. You'll never find anything else like it in the world. Simply won't happen. So enjoy most of it. Make the most of it. It's yours. He said, take a moment to look around and see everyone around you. He says, cherish this, boys, cherish this. And then he goes on to say, to the boys. He said, Gilman football did not exist for anyone on the outside looking in. It was not about public accolades. He said, this is what Gilman's about. It's about living in community. It's about fostering relationship. It's about learning the importance of serving others. People say, well, coach, aren't you supposed to win games? He says, you keep that primary and the games work on their own. Gilman has the most winning seasons of any football team in all of Maryland. One of the parents would come and say, how, how, how are we going to do this year, coach? He says, you know, I'm not going to know him for another 21 years. <laughs> I'm sorry, what? Well, that's when we know if the boys get it, when they come back as fathers. We're making men. We're making men. And, and I, I, I was reading this, and I, I was so moved by it that I thought to myself, that, that's exactly what we have here. Families are being torn apart. I, 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 got, I got home, I was tired, and my son Michael said, Dad, what was the best part of your trip? And he goes, I know what you're going to say and don't say it. And I go, well, it's true though, son. He goes, well, okay, Really, Dad, what was the best part of your trip? I said, the best part of my trip is coming home. And I love traveling. I love seeing all those things, but I love coming home. This is my home. This is my church. This is my family. And, and uh, I, I dropped my son off, and I got to pray with him and the other boy that we picked up before he went into school, and then I went over to the coffee shop. I walk in. They know me by name. They have my coffee ready. Had a conversation with him, and then Pastor Tom from Monta Vista Press said, "Rob, I said, hey Tom." We sat there. And he says, "What have you been doing?" I said, "I just got back from Israel yesterday, and I was there." And Governor Perry, and he says, "Wow, that's really exciting." I mean, do you just get a thrill out of that? I said, "You know what I get a thrill out of, Tom?" He goes, "What's that?" I go, "Right here, Tom, being with you." We sat down. And we talked about the bean patch. We talked about reaching the community for Christ. We talked about wanting to win the school board seats. We, want, we talked about getting the other pastors involved. We sat there for two hours talking about how to reach this community for Christ and making every vestige just, just filled with Jesus. We want to we be in the PTA. We want to be in all the school areas. We know that, that um, our principal at Newberry Park is leaving next year, but we want to make sure that there's such a presence of Christ that the next principal is going to be okay. When Ethel, or Ethel Wong leaves, everything's going to be fine. And we just started talking about that. And, he, and we began to pray, and we asked God to give unity with the other pastors, that we'd be unified in this pursuit. And we want to do it together. And it was awesome. 
And then to open the psalm and realize when David says in verse 2, it's like the precious oil upon the head running down on the beard of Aaron, running down on the edge of his garments. I think that's pretty cool. That we dwell together in this idea of this sacred brotherly love likened to an oil. It was, it was a special oil of the priest alone. Only the priest could wear this. They had this special concoction of oil that's only for the high priest. And, and nobody knew the, the, the mixture of it. And, and here David is saying it's like the, the oil running down the beard of Aaron and all the way down the edges of his garment. That the fragrance of, of, of this high priest alone saturating his beard and going down to every vestige of, of the clothing that he wears. It touches his entire being. And, and, and it takes me back to that picture when the woman uh, with the alabaster jar, very costly oil of spikenard, broke it and poured it over Jesus' head. It said the, the room was filled with the fragrance. And, and we know that the Bible says that we are the, the fragrance of Christ, the aroma of Christ. To the one, we are the aroma of life to life and the aroma of death to death. That, that, when, that, that when the room is filled, people are so irritated that you've brought Christ into the room that they're just they're angry and they're on their way to death. But when the fragrance of Christ is just saturating your being and you walk into the room and every portion of the room is filled, folks just light up. And it's that fragrance that fills the room. And David says, it is like that precious oil upon the head running down into the beard and the beard of Aaron and running down the edges of his garment. I mean, that's just beautiful. It's the high priest. It, it, it's to the Lord, to the Lord, this is what it's all about. And Aaron would be the center theme in this temple worship, this idea that there's authority and that authority reaches into every vestige of the temple. And everybody recognizes it, everybody submits to it, and the body of Christ, the church of God, the family of God is unified in the fragrance of God, the fragrance of Christ. We want the world to know. And, and remember, we've studied this. Ecclesiastes 10.1 says, A good name is like a precious fragrance, but better is the day of a man's death than the day of his birth. Ecclesiastes 10.1. A good name is like a precious fragrance, better is the day of a man's death than the day of his birth. Because we know when a man dies, only when he dies is his name beautiful or not. We, we only see how a life is lived at the day of their funeral. And we have seen this room packed full of people. I remember Bob Gainsley's funeral. The place was packed. I hear stories. A, a year after he died, a year after he died, there were kids from El Camino Real High School out at his gravesite. That's amazing. Kids telling me how they led, he led them to the Lord and he prayed with them and he paid for their, when they didn't, and brought, that guy, I, I, it's still the ripple effect of his life. What a fragrance. I've done funerals where nobody's there. I remember the first funeral I ever did. It was for a drug addict woman, 33 years old. Her mother and her estranged daughter and nobody else in the room. And her daughter didn't even know who she was. And the mother went just because she had to. That woman's life stunk. It was putrid. It was a stench. Proven at her death. We're all born with a name, but how it smells only comes at the end of your life. Is it a fragrance or a stench? And that's what he's saying. Life lived for others. Endeavoring to keep unity is a fragrance that the world can witness because we're serving one another in love.
And then finally in verse 3 it says, It's like the dew of Hermon, Mount Hermon, descending upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Uh, we, we went up to the Golan Heights and then we went to Tel Dan uh, to the headwaters of Caesarea Philippi. And at the headwaters there of the Jordan River, it was up towards, a, I always get mistaken, it was towards Lebanon, Assyria and Lebanon, where they come together. And it's a one region, it's about 9,000 feet high. It's the highest region in that area. Mount Hermon is the highest mountain in that area. And that range up there uh, is the highest occupied territory of the UN. It's a buffer zone between Syria and Israel and Syria and Lebanon. And they occupy it, but, but the highest point for Israel on this, this ascent to Mount Hermon is about 7,000 feet, and they have the only ski resort in all of Israel right there. And, and yet all, we, we were there in January, and you could see Mount Hermon covered in snow. It was the most snow they'd received in a number of years, and, and there it was, Mount Hermon. And the beauty of Mount Hermon is that it feeds into three springs that just saturate the entire valley with water, and the Jordan and, and the Sea of Galilee, Knesseret, and then it trickles down into the Dead Sea. But, but water is what it's all about there. And you control the water, you control the land. And that's why the Syrians want the Golan Heights. That's why they, they, they fight for the Golan Heights. That's why every time you go on a trip to Israel, the Israeli tourist department insists that you go to the Golan Heights so they can give you that political speech of why they're so important because they look down on Galilee and they'll bomb them and take all the water. And it's true. It's absolutely true. But this idea with Mount Hermon, it's, it, it's so saturated with snow and the springs that dwell there and the water that it pours into the valley that, that what the Lord is saying is from that mountain, God commands blessing, and it's this water of life. And you drive through Israel, and you see orchards and, and fields that are just green in the middle of the desert. And then you look over to Syria, and it's just desolate, nothing. You look over into Lebanon, def, desolate, nothing. And, and every border that Israel has, uh, you can see this dividing line. You go into the Palestinian territory. It's filthy, it's ugly, it's dirty, and nothing grows. You come to the other side of the Israeli border, everything's flourishing. Everything's growing. Everything's profitable. Everything's beautiful. You go back into the Palestinian, ugly, desolate, miserable, killing everybody. And you just see this contrast. It's like God's hand here, God's hand not here. God's hand here, God not there. God here, God not, no, yeah, hmm. okay. But the Lord commands this blessing. And it's this water of life. And he's, he's equating, let me tell you where it comes from. It comes from unity. I, 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 have, a, I have a physical illustration of it. A 15-hour flight on El Al Airlines, the only airline in the world that has anti-missile defense systems because everybody wants to kill the Jews. They made us take off from the furthest runway on LAX. We were flying down the Mediterranean, coming right for Cyprus, straight line into Tel Aviv, and we have to go around northern Cyprus, which is owned by Turkey. They won't give them air rights. So they have to go around them and then get back on target. Nobody, worst passport in the world to have is an Israeli passport. And you figure in Masada in 73 AD, they're annihilated by the Romans and never again to have a homeland. And then 1948, when they get it back, after they've lost 6 million people, there wasn't a person in our group when we walked through Yad Vashem where you saw the, the monument, the memorial to the 1.5 million children that were experimented on by the Nazis.
Everybody's weeping. And all of a sudden, after almost 2,000 years, you get a homeland. 15-hour flight, everybody's exhausted. This plane lands. Secular Jews, Orthodox Jews, whatever it is, the plane lands. Everybody in the plane starts cheering. We're home. We're together in this venture. You know, all the Israeli Defense Force kids, two years of service, they go through the training at the beginning of it and they, they take them through Yad Vashem. Then they take them up to Masada. They say, this is what it's like to lose your country. It will never happen again. We're unified in the defense of our nation. That's why they're dancing. Could you imagine our high school seniors dancing because they're going to get indoctr- in, in, inducted into the military? They'd be like, eh, get lost. This sucks. I hate this. I want to go play Nintendo. Eh, you're taking away my freedom. I want to go surfing. Two years. Are you kidding me? That's two years. The best years of my life. And these kids are down there dancing. Because they know it's like to lose their country, their relatives. Everybody can, uh, we get it. And they're surrounded by enemies at any moment. And if, I got news for you. Satan doesn't care about anything else other than the destruction of the church. You have been created in the image of God. You have the, the audacity to believe that God loves you. You have the audacity to declare his word to be true and to preach his gospel fearlessly. He is, he is going to open up all of hell to crush you. And the only thing you have is the Lord and each other. And if you learn anything from going to Israel, realize that he wants to take your homeland. But he's given us each other. And he's going to try to divide us and destroy us. And, and the Lord says, you need to be the water of life to the world around you. You need to be like Mount Hermon, descending upon the mountains of Zion, for the Lord commanded that blessing. And that's where life comes from, from that living water. And if, and if we don't dwell together in unity and we don't proclaim the Lord, it's just destruction. Folks, who designed marriage? Then keep it together. We're Christians. You don't leave the church because somebody insulted you. Grow a spine. We're the body of Christ, we're family. Yeah? My dad used to say he, he, he couldn't stand it when we argued with each other. He couldn't stand division in the home. My dad was a peacemaker. I'll close with one story. My mom and dad were going to move into another home near Ocean Boulevard. My sister had sold the house they were in. They were going to move to another home. And they weren't into that home yet, and it was during the summertime, and we were all coming down for an event, and, and my mom said, you guys can stay in the house for this period of time, but you need to be out by this day. And I said, okay. And we went down there, and, and uh, my mom was just weird. She was just being rude and mean, and, and she just had this way about her. Just Old people are like kids. The problem is you just can't spank them, Right? 
And she needed a spanking. I'm sure I did too, but that's how I felt. And you, you don't talk poorly about Michelle. I mean, she, she talks smack about all the other kids, well, spouses, and, but you gotta be, you gotta be whacked to do that with Michelle. And she made some surly comment, and I just said, you know what, that's it. And, and she had come into the house, and she was upset, and she was just, she was just caustic. I just said, you know, I don't need this. And, and we drove a long, I'm not doing it anymore. I'm not coming down to be abused. I'm not coming down to endure your lashings. I'm not going to do it anymore. You're mean. And you're just not nice. And we're leaving. And Michelle's like, honey, calm down. I go, don't, don't, don't. You don't understand. I've gone through this for four, whatever how old I was. I said, just, that's, this isn't your fight. And my dad, and this was only a few years ago, my dad was in the throes of Alzheimer's. He's watching this. And we're grabbing our stuff and we're throwing it in the car. I'm going, get in the car. Everybody get in the car. We're leaving. Get in. And, 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 and we're packing in and my mother just walks in and she just slams the door. And she, she'll, she'll fight you. Oh, you want to draw battle lines? Let's get ready to rumble. My father left when I was four. My mother died when I was 16. You think life's hard? You don't know hard. I know how to fight. I lived with my, my aunt and my uncle. I had to fight for food. My mom knows how to fight. She knows pain. She knows what it's like to go through abuse. She knows it all. She'll fight you. She goes, you want to have a war? I got a war for you. She goes into the house and draws her battle line. I get in the car, I draw mine. Let's do this. <laughs> and my dad, his mind is shot. And I'm pulling out of the driveway. I'm watching my dad. Don't, he can't even talk. He just knows this shouldn't happen. And I'm watching his hands. And his heart's breaking, but his mind can't communicate. And I can't tell him because if I stop, I lose the war. And I pull away with him in my rearview mirror. Months passed. Angry. Every day, Marty would come in, call your mother. Marty, you leave. <laughs> come back and call your mother. Marty, get out. Rob, call you. Marty, I'm serious. This isn't your fight either. I got angry at Michelle. I get angry at you. Get out of my office with that. He'd wait a week. He'd come back in. Rob, What's this about, Marty? Just hear me out. No. And one day he came and he says, Rob, I want to tell you a story about my son. I was estranged to him when I divorced my first wife and we didn't talk for years. And I'm now in my 80s and I miss those years and I don't want to lose them. I don't want you to lose them. And he just pleaded with me. And he was completely right. And he kept bringing me verses that I'd teach on. If I taught this one, he would have slammed me. And he says, Rob, call your mother. I said, Marty, I don't even know what I'd say. He says, you're a funny man. Tell her a joke. I said, I don't have any jokes. He reaches in and pulls out this wad of paper. He goes, I put him in order of funny. The top one I think is the best. And he was right. It was a hilarious, it was a joke about a guy with Alzheimer's. I called my mom and I said, uh, hello. And she goes, yes. Oh. 
I don't like you. I'm trying to love you. And I want, right now I want to kill you, basically. I'm going to hang up. Don't do that again. Hi, Mom. Yes. Okay. Okay. Now we're pushing it. And, and I, I go, okay, I, I want to tell you a joke. Marty gave me, Pastor Marty gave me a joke. I'm going to read the joke to you. Okay. And I read the joke. It's about a story about a guy that uh, he had a memory problem, and, and he was meeting with his friend, and his, his friend says, hey, how's your memory problem? He says, you know, it's doing great. I went to a seminar. It's an amazing, amazing seminar. Totally cured me of my lack of memory. He goes, really? He goes, yeah. He goes, what was, what was the name of the seminar? He goes, name of the seminar. Name of the seminar. Okay, name of the seminar. Uh, um, what is, what is that, that flower with the long stem and the thorns and the red flower? What is that? He goes, it's a rose. He goes, ah, hey, Rose, what's the name of that seminar that we went to? Okay, so, and my mom, you didn't, but my mom laughed hysterically because she was dealing with a man with Alzheimer's. And we reconciled and I told her I was sorry. And she didn't say she was sorry at all. Not one drop. Mom, I apologize. I was wrong. I had no business. I just, I'm sorry. Okay. Yeah, so busy. And then five months later, she had lung cancer. Three months later, she was dead. I'm glad I picked up that phone. How good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. We're family. We're family. Amen? You got struggles in your marriage? Get on your knees. Clean up your side of the street. And quit being such a pig head. Oh, that's just too simple, Pastor. You don't understand. Yes, I do. I'm married 23 years. My wife gets it. She's married to me. Come on. Buckle up. Just die. If I can call my mother back, you can deal with your marriage. Trust me. If God can forgive you the multitude of your sins, you most certainly can forgive one another and get busy unifying. Amen? Because it doesn't matter if you're white, black, or Hispanic, rich or poor. You get your own way and your kids get shafted. We're community. Right? God knows that the building block of any community is family. The church is a family and your family's a family. Keep them together. Amen. Questions tonight? Everybody's okay? Not too angry with me? Can I hit you a little hard? My bad, sorry. All right, let's pray and then I'll I'll run out the door before you. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for Psalm 131, 132, and Lord, 133. These psalms of ascent. Lord, we're coming into the house of the Lord. If we have an issue with our brother, everything pales in comparison. We need to resolve that and get right. Because the world's watching and so are the kids. But more importantly, you command it. And when we're divided and when we sow discord, you hate it. You hate divorce. You hate those who sow discord and division. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd heal us and you'd make us one as you and the Father are one. 
that we would dwell together in unity and we would endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So Lord, unite our hearts. Allow us to apply Matthew 18. And if we're offended, we'll just go and resolve it. And I thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness to bless us when we do that. In Jesus' name, amen.